Just to make sure, if you're wondering, I thought we were doing Psalm 65. Did I, was there a blip here? Did we skip over 50 Psalms? Uh, yes, uh, I'm just jumping ahead. Pastor Ted's coming back next Sunday, and he's going to pick up where uh, he left off and uh, going into Psalm 65. But we're going to be looking at Psalm 113 today. today. Well, let me pray. Father, we bless you and we thank you, for you are good. In all your ways are kindness to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would feed us from your word. You're such a kind God that you would talk to your kids, to your children, so that we might know who you are, so that we might know who we are, so that we might understand the world we live in. But particularly, Lord, we thank you for not only giving us words, but giving us songs and psalms that we might be able to know how to respond to this truth. So, Lord, would you help us now? By your Spirit, would you give us grace and help that we might understand, that we might love and apply your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Something I love doing, I love watching people. Uh, I love watching people, whether they're at bus stops or train stations or wherever. Uh, But one of the things I love is watching people when they respond, when suddenly uh, someone really big and important gives them their full attention and time and to see the wonder and amazement and shock on their faces. Uh, You may have seen it, you know, like the, the TV hands over, and after the game, you might see like LeBron or Messi or something like that, take their shoes off, sign it, and give it to a kid who's just on the sideline, and they're like, what just happened? They have no category. They're absolutely blown away. Or when uh, maybe someone really big or famous goes to a hospital and visits a child with a terminal condition, and they're there with them, and they're talking, and and conversing with them, and giving them a hug, talking to them, using their personal name, and maybe taking a picture with them, and spending all this time with them. I love watching the children's face. They're just amazed. They're thinking, how can this person be spending so much time with me? I'm so small. I'm so weak. I'm so broken. Insignificant, they might feel. But here is someone so big and important, spending all this time, being so concerned, caring for me so much that they would be with me. I love watching their faces when that happens. And I think when that happens, we're actually getting a little bit of a glimpse as to the kind of God that the one true and living God is like. He, like no one else, there's there's really honestly no one bigger, (laughs) there's no one more important No one greater than God, and yet no one more concerned, no one more filled with care than our Lord in wanting to be with us who are so small, so weak, so insignificant. But the Lord is like this. He loves to be with the weak and the small, no matter how big he is. And Psalm 113 actually helps us this morning to get a window, get a picture of how God is exactly like this. Uh, This here in Psalm 113, if you're open, uh, you'll notice that the first verse, really the first phrase and the last phrase of this song begin with a hallelujah, which is praise the Lord. 
If you ever wanted to be bilingual, now you are. This is a Hebrew word, hallelujah. It just means praise the Lord. And it begins and ends. This song begins and ends with this incredible phrase, this call for spontaneous and enthusiastic worship of God. Hallelujah. And then it goes into detail in the first few verses on how we should praise the Lord. It walks us through here. We'll kind of go backwards, starting in verse 3 and moving up. Verse 3 beautifully illustrates that wherever the sun shines, God is to be praised. In all places, wherever the sun rises and wherever the sun sets, God is to be praised. He's the creator and he's the sustainer of all. And so he's worthy to be praised by all all of his creation. And so wherever the sun shines, in all those places, he is to be praised. But not only is he to be praised in all places, but he's also to be praised by all peoples. Every people under the sun are also called to praise him. Particularly, not just because all of creation is to. We've looked at other passages in scripture where Rocks and trees want to cry out, and everything in the ocean wants to sing God's praises. Yes, that's true, but there's something particular about humans, because we're made in the image of God. We're actually hardwired to worship God in such a unique way that no other creature can do. And so we are designed, not only all places are to worship the Lord, but all peoples in all places. And it doesn't stop there. It actually goes on in verse 2. It said that kind of a praise should never stop in all places, among all peoples, for all time. It says that his praise should go on and on and on forever to be delighted in and enjoyed and worshipped. God is worthy of this kind of praise. There has never been a time before creation, since God has created, or forevermore in which God's name will not be praised. And he now calls us, the psalm invites us to get on board, to get on track, to get on the same page with the rest of creation and what is happening in heaven already and to praise God, to do that in all places, among all peoples, for all time, for all eternity. This will be our great joy. And it's interesting, it is our great joy. In verse 1 The people of God are called the servants of the Lord. It's a unique phrase that is designed intentionally to uh, bring back to mind for the Israelites. They were the original singers of this song. And so it's to help them recall what God did way back when he rescued them up out of the slavery that they were enslaved in, in Egypt, and bringing them into God's house of freedom, to serve him with love and joy and delight. And so in light of this salvation, they're now called, the children of God are now called servants of the Lord, who really more than anyone else have more reason and more motivation to praise the Lord and sing hallelujah. Actually, this psalm, 113 is at the beginning of a set of songs, a bit of a playlist, Psalm 113 to 118, and they're actually called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, or Hallel just means praise, so it's the Egyptian praise songs. It's this playlist that Israel and that the Jews would sing around Passover. They would sing it because it reminded them, all this set 
of songs, it reminded them of what God had done. And at Passover, which was linked to their rescue out of Egypt, it was to bring back to mind and recall for them the celebration of how God, in his mercy, had passed over their sins. God had given them a meal, the Passover meal, and he had given this meal in which a lamb would be killed on behalf of that family. And the blood would be put up over the doorpost, and they would eat this lamb and bitter herbs and uh, unleavened bread. And it was to remind them that they needed something or someone to die in their place as a substitute so that God's judgment would pass over them so that he could save them and rescue them. And so they would have this Passover meal every year. And it became a tradition where they would actually begin, they would sing Psalm 113 and 114 at the beginning of the meal. And at near the end of the meal, they would sing the other four songs, uh, Psalms, 15 and 16, 17 and 118. It's helpful, actually, because when we read Mark 14, verse 26, we see that Jesus, at the end of the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal, he sang a hymn with his disciples. This would have been the hymns that he was singing with them before he went to Gethsemane as the Passover lamb. I, I, the reason I say all of that is because these psalms, and particularly Psalm 113 is no exception, it's filled with these redemptive themes that God is saving and redeeming and rescuing and renewing and restoring his people. They're, they're filled with these shocking examples of God's love and grace and power to rescue and redeem the lowly and raise them up high to be with him. And so that's exactly what this psalm is doing. It highlights two characteristics of God in particular that ought to move us as it has done God's people for all centuries Move us to sing hallelujah. Move us to praise the Lord. And so if you're taking notes, those two characteristics are this, are these. So strong. We praise the Lord because he's so strong and sovereign. And he's so close and caring. Uh, the first one is really highlighted in verse 4 and 5 and 6. The first reason why we are moved to praise the Lord is because he's so strong and he's so sovereign. Verse 4 and 5 says, The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. <laughs> who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high. The Lord God is seated, and he's seated on a throne. And that throne is a picture of God's complete control and authority and power over all of creation. And his throne is so high, it's so high that it's not just above all the nations of the earth and all their little kings and kingdoms and governments, but it's even higher than heaven itself. It stands exalted above the heavens that God alone has made. Just think of that, of what that would be like for God to reign, not just above our globe and not above the kingdoms of this world, but above heaven itself. Maybe some of you have looked at the sun. Don't encourage you to do that. But in the morning or in the evening, you can tell it's about the size of a loony or so. But 
it's actually much, much more massive. When we think of the heavens and we think of what God has made in the heavens and in the sky and in the space, we realize that the sun is actually massive. Uh, you can actually put about a million earths inside the sun. That's how huge the sun is. Uh, but the sun is just one of many stars and kind of an average-sized star in our galaxy, the Milky Way. Uh, there's uh, another star that's in the top 10 called Betelgeuse. And you can put a million suns in that one star. That's how huge this one star is. But that's not even number one. Number one is called UY Scooty. I don't know who comes up with these names. I mean, it's pretty fun. I don't know. That sounds like a great job. But this star, it's the largest one that we know in our galaxy. It's right in the middle. UI Scooty. You can put five billion suns in this one star. It is mind-blowingly huge. It's massive. And that is just three stars. Our sun and Betelgeuse and UI Scooty. Those are just three stars out of an estimated 100 thousand million stars in our galaxy alone, in the Milky Way. But of course, our galaxy is just one of many in the universe. Scientists estimate about 200 trillion galaxies in the universe. And if each of them have about the same amount of stars in ours, then we're kind of looking at a number around 100 billion trillion stars each of them inconceivably massive and a bajillion, gajillion light years away. That last term is not a real one. I just made it up. It's, it's mind-blowing. It's absolutely mind-blowing to realize how big and how high and huge the heavens are that God has made. And his throne is above it all. He's bigger. He's greater. He's higher than all of his creation. The heavens are like a footstool to him. And he has to. The way that God has arranged this, he gives us this astounding picture of his throne being so huge that it helps us gain perspective. He's higher and greater so that these stars that we've talked about, these absolutely massive, massive stars, they're just like marbles in his hand. Uh, the earth that we're on, it's, it's barely a speck of dust compared to how huge and big God is. That's why it's absolutely laughable when you hear about governments or kings on this globe that are bragging about how big and awesome they are. Or Fortune 500 companies or artists and athletes that claim to be the GOAT. And they're so enamored with their own greatness that you realize this is absolutely absurd when you compare this to the creator, the almighty creator, the God most high. God is above all of this. And if we've come here today just absolutely enamored with our own greatness, God lovingly wants to cure us from the cataracts of pride that, that really blind us to the true perspective, the truth of who God is and how small we are. God has designed the entire heavens to remind us on a 24-hour basis how huge he is. If this is the galaxy, if this is the universe, if this is the heavens that God has made, how much greater is the creator? Amen. We are to be reminded 
daily of his awesomeness and our smallness. This is why in verse 6, it even says that God has to look far down. (laughs) I love how it's put there. He looks far down on the heavens and then on the earth. He's so high, he's so exalted, he has to lean over and kind of peer down through the universe to our galaxy and then around our sun, over the moon, onto this earth and look to our city and then our neighborhood and then finally to see our place and to see us. After getting through the clouds and the smog, he sees us. And this is how high he is. He's got to lean over. In fact, that phrase that he has to look far down, it literally means he makes himself low. The one who is so high and deservedly so high loves to make himself low so that he can not only see but know us and understand our situation and to be by our side. He loves this. He's so loving and humble. This is his nature to do so. And this is what King David recognized in Psalm 8, verse 3 to 4, when he said, When I look at the heavens, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? God is not just strong and sovereign, but he is sweetly mindful and caring of his creatures. Those of us, all of us, small and weak, the Almighty Almighty Creator loves to be close and caring. And this is really the second reason, the second attribute of God that really compels us to praise Him is that not only is He so strong and sovereign, but He's so close and caring. He's so close and caring. God is not some uh, distant God on the edge of the universe that's just kind of watching us from a distance and could really care less. Uh, He's also not the kind of God in which he stands far off and just mocks us at our foolishness or laughs at us in our grief or smiles at our suffering. That's not who he is. He's also not the type of God like many other gods and other religions that says, if you want me to come close and help, you'd better clean yourself up first and begin getting busy climbing your way up some ladder of religious obedience to actually come to me. To actually ascend to me. But the, the, the one true and living God is not like this. Praise God. He's a loving God. He's a loving God who looks and sees, but then he leaps into action. When he sees us and sees our situation, he sends help. And there's no greater help than the one that he has sent, which is sending himself again and again. He sends himself to come all the way down through the heavens and past the stars, all the way to us, to our very hearts, to our very conscience, right in the middle of our mess. He loves to come all the way down and meet us there. He comes so close because he is so caring. Caring enough and close enough to take us by the hand and lift us up out of our brokenness. 
Can you imagine how close you have to be to get down, to lift someone up? It's very close, very tangible. This is the kind of God we love and sing his praises. And look how he does this. He kind of walks through in this Psalm 113 two specific ways on how God gets so close and how he's so caring. And the first is this, is that he lifts up the needy to the seat of royalty. He lifts up the needy to a seat of royalty. It says in verse 7 and 8, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He comes to them in the dust. Notice he raises them. He lifts them. How close he has to get to do that. And notice what he's lifting them out of. The dust and the heap of ashes. Do you know what it's like to be in dust and ashes? When your life and all your plans have not panned out to such a degree that they're not just merely broken, but crushed to dust. And that all your dreams and hopes have been burned to ashes. It's not as though there's some charred log that you can kick around or salvage and pick up to rebuild. It's not as though that there's some rock still in the rubble that you can retrieve and begin to rebuild your life. They are crushed to dust. They've been cremated to ashes. There is no hope. And I know some of us are there right now. And others of us have been there. And it's dark and it's lonely. And it feels hopeless and helpless. But this is exactly where God loves to go. He loves, he sees, and he comes. He sends himself to come to us in that moment when we are hopeless, zero hope. He comes to the dust and the ashes of our life and our utter brokenness and comes and lifts us up. We have no strength. He has to lift us. And that's why he has everlasting arms. He has the hands and the arms necessary to lift us out of our brokenness. And when he does, we realize how close and how caring our God is He wants to. He loves to. God has never come to us in the dust and ashes ever begrudgingly. Like, oh, here we go again. He's back there. No, never, not once. Eager to go, happy to go, powerful enough to go. Loves, rejoices over the opportunity to come to us in our dust and ashes. And he has done this Again and again. His track record is perfect. We can look in the Old Testament. 
And in the Old Testament, we see God come to his people again and again through his word and through the prophets, through signs and wonders, different miracles that he would do, even to the point of literally physically taking some of his people and putting them on real thrones of royalty, taking them up out of their brokenness, up out of their ashes, and onto real thrones. Uh, we think of Abraham, a wandering immigrant who was considered a prince in the surrounding nations. Or more specifically, Joseph, who went from being a wrongly accused, imprisoned slave in Egypt to then becoming from there all the way up to the prime minister over the entire empire. Or we think of David, this lowly shepherd boy, pastoring sheep out in the wilderness, to being set as the very king of Israel and the conqueror of nations. And we could go on and on of these examples. Think of Gideon or Daniel or Mordecai. But we get the idea. God loves to flip the script and turn the tables and raise up the lowly to the highest heights and seat them on seats of royalty. Now, this is not to say that God does this for every person in every situation. Lifting them, lifting them up and literally put, making them kings and queens, putting them on a real throne. But he has done this, and he can do this, and ultimately he does do this spiritually for all his people by saving them in Christ. No one has gone so low, and no one has been raised so high than Jesus. No one has gone so low as to leave heaven itself and come to earth, not merely to see man, but to become man. And Christ went lower still by taking on not just our nature, but taking on our sin, and then taking that on the cross in our place. And he went lower still, going to the grave, being buried in a tomb. And having lowered himself to the lowest place, God raised him up to the highest place. In Philippians 2, Paul describes this. He says, have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He set aside all of his divine glory, all his heavenly honor and glory, by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Ephesians, Paul says something very similar. In Ephesians 1, 20 to 21, he says that God did this in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven, far above all rule and authority, fully God, fully man at the right hand of the Father. And the amazing thing is that he took us with him when he went there. It says that after having paid for our sins, he secured eternal life for all of God's children. So that anyone, anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, of the forgiver of their sins, of the Savior of their soul, of the one who is the lifter of their life, when they trust in him as Lord and Savior, he saves them and he lifts them up. They're immediately united to Jesus spiritually so that as Jesus is right there, the right hand of the Father, and we have received his spirit and are connected or united to Jesus spiritually, then it is as though we ourselves are sitting with Jesus at the right hand of the Father spiritually. It's amazing. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 6. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were dead in our sins, when we were in the dust and the ashes of our sins, that's when he saved us. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Beloved, for all those who have trusted in Christ, you have been lifted up. You've been raised up with Christ. You are now united with Jesus. And as surely as he sits beside the Father, so you are in him and you are spiritually reigning with him, united to Christ with him at the right hand of the Father. This is the kind of, this, amen, this is the necessary perspective that we need. When this world is full of dust and ashes, it's so easy to lose perspective. I don't know if you've ever been in a dust storm or a sandstorm. Your eyes get full of gunk. Things get blurry. We need constant perspective every day. And this is why, this, this is why the Father has spoken to us as his children, so that we don't lose perspective, so that we're constantly reminded of these truths that as hard as this world is, I am united to Jesus, and I have been lifted up with him, and my life is hidden in Christ. Now, just to clarify, being united to Jesus doesn't make us a God, doesn't make us a member of the Trinity or anything like that. What it's saying is that we're connected, we're united, we're attached to God. As Jesus would say, we are one with the Father because we're in Christ by the Spirit. This is an amazing, amazing reality. It would be as though, I don't have a pen here, I, I did in the first service, it just happened to be here. If this was us, and this is God the Father and Jesus Christ, we are caught in the middle of this Trinitarian love between the Father and the Son by the Spirit, and he brings us in the middle. So we're absolutely flooded and tsunamied with the Trinitarian love. This is God's design. He wants us to get so close. So we are so aware of how much he cares for us that he attaches us in the Son so that we might be one with the Father and be absolutely flooded with the love of God. 
that we might be filled to all the fullness of God. This is why Paul prays again and again in all his letters that we might know the breadth and width and height and depth of the love of Christ. If we were absolutely enthralled and enamored with how much God loves us and all that he has done so that we could grow in that love, we, so many things would be put into perspective. This is so essential for us day by day to know the love of God and how close and caring it has driven him toward us. God's amazing ability to raise the lowly to the highest heights is something that moves us to praise him. And it's moved his saints to praise him throughout the centuries. Uh, You may even think on this theme of Mary's song, Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's often referred to in Luke 1, her Magnificat. This is her song of praise. She was so blown away. Who am I that God would even be aware of me, pay attention to me, let alone choose me to be the mother of the Messiah. Her name, Mary, means bitterness. She knew what it was like to be lowly and in the dust. And she says this in verse 51 and 52 of Luke 1. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Of course, Mary's song is probably very familiar to another song that you might be remembering, and that's the song of Hannah. Back in 1 Samuel 2, verses 5 to 8, and this is actually a quote for um, Psalm 113, verse 7 and 8, are actually quoted from Hannah's song, which says, Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low, he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And so the saints of God have been singing this theme throughout the centuries, and we praise the Lord with them because he's so close, he's so caring. He seats us and lifts us up to royalty, to a seat of honor. And this brings us to the last way in which we see God drawing so close. He's so caring that he would set us on his throne. But not only that, that he would draw so close and he's so caring that he would actually give to the barren a home of hope. He would give to the barren a home of hope. This is the last verse there in verse nine. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. We heard this song in this theme in Hannah's song, and we see it again here in Psalm 113, because this was Hannah's story. Hannah had been married, but she was barren. She had no children. And she was, she felt the, the shame 
and the confusion that comes with that, and was ridiculed and mocked by others because of her infertility. It's a, it's a sad and sobering story. And I know even in our church family, many have experienced this kind of pain of barrenness and the, of infertility and the confusion and the frustration, the disappointment that comes, the longing and the pain that it produces, the pressure and embarrassment that comes from outside, sometimes even from within. And at times, the Lord mercifully answers and hears our prayer for physical children. And this was the case with Hannah. Hannah, like Sarah and Rebecca before her, Hannah was helpless and hopeless to change her situation, and she cried out to the Lord for mercy. And God granted her a son, and she named him Samuel. And he, the Lord, gave her a home. A home here in Psalm 113, home doesn't mean a, a physical structure like a townhouse or a condo. It means a family. It means children. That there is a home now given. This is similar to how in 2 Samuel 7, God uses this word for, toward King David when he promises to make him a house, make him a home. And he's talking there that descendants will come and children will be raised up for him, particularly a son who will reign in his place. And so too, God is able to make a home for the barren woman by giving her children. But the Lord doesn't always answer in this way, in granting physical children. And in the same way that we saw earlier in the Old and New Testament, that God doesn't lift every believer in every situation to actual physical thrones of royalty, but instead he has raised all believers up spiritually to thrones and to his throne in heaven, in Christ, so too at this time in the Old and New Testament, God doesn't give every barren woman physical children now. But instead, he can give them spiritual children here on earth through the sharing of the gospel and making them joyous mothers spiritually. It's true when we look back in the book of Genesis, we're going through the book of Genesis before the summer. Hopefully, we'll jump back into it in the fall. And we read right in the very first chapter of Genesis this creation mandate that God blessed Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with physical children for the glory of God. And that mandate has not ceased. We're still to, to do that. But it's now been superseded by a gospel mandate, by the Great Commission, which we find in Matthew 28, verse 19, where Christ says, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make spiritual children among all peoples and all languages, born of the Spirit for the glory of God, saved by the grace of God through faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This is exactly how Paul referred to the Thessalonians and to the Corinthians when he went there and preached the gospel. He referred to them as his spiritual children. And in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he went so far as to say, I'm a father to you in the faith, and I, he likens himself to a mother nurturing their faith in Christ. Paul 
would often call himself, he would call Timothy and Titus his children in the faith in his letters to them. And so the calling to make spiritual children is really given to all of us, and it's the emphasis in the New Testament. And it's even anticipated and foretold in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 54, it's surprising, it's right after Isaiah 53, describing how Jesus gives himself as the Messiah, as the suffering servant, to save people unto God. In the next chapter, Isaiah 54 describes how Israel is referred to as the barren one who did not bear any children. Because after centuries of unfaithfulness and idolatry, Israel was unable to produce spiritual children, and especially a Messiah, a long-awaited son and savior. And so, by grace, a miracle of God was given through a virgin birth in Mary, that God would give his own son, Jesus Christ, who in turn would save Israel and the Gentiles around the world from their sins. And because of this multitude of these believers, these spiritual children, Jews and Gentiles coming in from all around the world, God commands in Isaiah 54 for the house to be expanded, for tent pegs to be spread out so there's more room for the children of God to come into his house of hope. And so, yes, let us pray and ask God to answer our prayers for physical children, just like the saints of old did. And let us come close and care for those who weep when God does not answer that prayer in giving physical children. Let us reflect our Savior in drawing close and weeping with those who weep. But let us also pray and trust the Lord that he would grant us to be spiritual parents, that we would go and make disciples and that by his grace, we would see many spiritual children from peoples of all nations, tribes, and tongues, and languages come to know the Savior so that his house may be filled, that God's house of hope would be filled with the children of God. Beloved, the Lord is to be praised. He's to be praised because he's so strong and sovereign, and he's so close and caring. And at the resurrection, when Jesus leaves his high and heavenly throne to come for us one last time, all the physical blessings that have been promised will then suddenly be realized with the spiritual ones. He will literally put us on thrones with him in the new heavens and the new earth to rule with him, it says in Revelation. And we will literally see our spiritual children with new resurrected bodies in God's home to be with him forever, to praise the Lord forever and ever. This is our hope. This is our calling. We have been raised up spiritually. We await the day when he returns physically to be able to then wrap all things up in history in the new heavens and new earth where we will reign with him, not just spiritually, but also physically. And the house of God will be filled with all peoples from all nations who have attached themselves to Christ. Let us turn to Jesus today so that we may begin to sing 
and praise the one who is so strong and sovereign and so close and caring. Let's pray. Father, we love you. There is no one like you. As you say in Psalm 62, once God has spoken and twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that you, O Lord, to you belongs steadfast love. And so we bless you from the rising of the sun to its setting. May the name of the Lord be praised for who is like our God? Who is like you? So high and exalted and so eager to make yourself low to the lowly that you might not merely be empathetic with them and pity them, but lift them and carry them up by your everlasting arms to the highest heights as they turn and trust in you. Oh God, I pray that we would trust in you today, whether it is for salvation, whether we are hearing the good news about Jesus for the first time, or maybe we have been walking in the faith for years, but Lord, we have forgotten because there's dust in our eyes. We have lost perspective of how you love to come to us and can carry us and lift us up. We have lost perspective. We forgot that you've united us to Christ and that even now we are united to him and seated with him in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. And you are coming. And you are coming again. You come you, you, every morning, our new mercies. You come to us every day spiritually by your spirit to carry us along by your promises. But there's a day when you will come physically and we will see you in the clouds. And you will come. And we will never be separate from you again. All the dust and the ashes will be gone. And all will be Christ. We pray, would you come? We ask this in your name.